Kara. Hey, Chris, how are you? Oh my, I am annoyed AF. How are you? I, it's been a long day, I won't lie. Today's my teaching day and teaching is exhausting in a pandemic, even more than usual. Yeah, it is. Uh, yesterday was my long day, two back-to-back Zoom courses, one of which is a hybrid, but was mostly on Zoom, and one was a grad course that was two and a half hours long with lots of freezing and trying to figure out who's mm-hmm. talking, trying to facilitate conversation online through chats, with masks, with people off their screen, with people freezing. How about you? Yeah, uh, so what was it? It was last Thursday. So I'm not sure how many of you know listening to this, but Notre Dame kind of, they like to say paused, didn't shut down, but paused face to face for two weeks, but they kept everybody on campus and we are now rotating back to face to face. However, I will be staying online. But that meant all students were doing online classes in their dorm rooms and all students were connecting to the Wi-Fi at the same time. And so, of course, the network just like crashed and collapsed last week. And so I had that same kind of situation, but I think far worse because there were literally students flying in and out of Zoom, dropping in and out constantly. This week has been better so far, but students are stressed, faculty are stressed, and we're with, this is the fourth week in. Mm. For Notre Dame at this point. And I know Alabama cases are skyrocketing right now. Well, we only have our entry testing data and then data on people who think they might have been exposed and went, and we haven't begun our sentinel testing yet. So although, and I'm not an apologist by any stretch, I've been railing for more transparency. But one of the problems is there simply haven't been the mechanisms in place to collect the data to be able to report what it is most of us would like to know. That was Notre Dame at first as well, and they have corrected some of that in this two-week pause. But I will tell you what they still don't seem to fully grasp, and that is human behavior. Well... (laughs) One of the ongoing conversations that anthropologists tend to have amongst ourselves and with other policy folks and other disciplines when they are willing to listen is that we have some expertise in how humans actually behave. And I think Mm -hmm. we talked about this last week. If you can get a medical anthropologist or a biocultural anthropologist or you know, someone who does study actual behavior of living humans on a policy-making committee, you might head off some of the inevitable problems that happen when you try to top-down get people to do things that is just not how people tend to do things. I think all administrators across the country could have benefited from talking to our guests today. So who are we talking to today? <laughs> How did you like that segue? I like it was that totally segue. set up. <laughs> uh, so today <laughs> we have Thomas Leatherman and Alan Goodman, who many of you may be familiar with from a conference, which I didn't know that this was a conference because it was well before my time and well before I think I was even in high school. 
I think I was still a child when this conference was being planned and, and uh, implemented on the importance of biocultural data collection methods, analysis and dissemination. And this of course culminated in a book which I have the title of here somewhere, Building a New Biocultural Synthesis, Political Economic Perspectives on Human Biology. And they recently added kind of an update to this whole framework of thinking within human biology that was the editor's choice article for the most recent special issue of AJHB. So in reading this article, I also noted that what is it, Cabo San Lucas or somewhere in Mexico where they had this conference. So I'm a little jealous of a time when conferences were held in exotic places and you get to go there with people who you've always dreamed of meeting and are motivated by there being mm. a funded conference in someplace cool to go and put together a book. That's one really cool. This book was foundational for my own training in biocultural medical anthropology and forms much of the basis for the philosophy of the department and the grad track in biocultural medical anthropology here at the University of Alabama. So this is a personally exciting interview for me. They laid the foundations or the, the path, they set the path for how I train students. Yeah, I gotta say, and the article, their, their kind of recent update on some new ways to look at biocultural analyses with human biology and the way that it's being used to address current day problems was a guiding light for me while writing a grant this summer. That article sat right next to my computer the entire several months that I wrote that grant, and it was incredibly insightful and also very forward-thinking. Maybe we should let them in from our Zoom waiting rooms. Hello. Greetings. How you doing, Chris? How you doing, Kara? We oh. are doing all right. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your patience. Well, welcome to the Sausage of Science. We're glad you could both join us at the same time. And they had the patience to wait for us to <laughs> essentially sing your praises in advance. Kara, do you want to get the ball rolling? Yeah, and so Chris and I kind of started things off talking about the current situation at each of our institutions with regards to the pandemic, which, you know, Notre Dame and Alabama have both been in the news for better or worse. Alabama's definitely worse. Notre Dame tries to put a positive spin on things. We uh, and I know, <laughs> And I know some recently bad news has come out of UMass Amherst, where you both are, and so we just wanted to do a check-in. How are you folks doing in handling the current chaos? You know, I think we're doing okay to a certain degree, but we also live in a kind of a rural, fairly clean, very protected area. People conform well, you know, and so, so it's made it, so it's made life a bit easier. We have our jobs. In some ways, you know, we're doing a lot better than other folks, or at least I am, you know, and, and we're all healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I've been feeling lucky and privileged. Now at UMass, you know, we, as you were saying, we've gone remote for almost all of the instruction. And they've only allowed mm. now a few, like about a thousand students back to campus. Mm. And the faculty are sort of well protected, but the staff aren't. And so part of the implication, yeah. maybe what you're you know, thinking about is that there's been announced a lot of furloughs, especially in food services, residential services, anyone dealing with students, because mm. there aren't students around. Anyway, it's a time there's a lot of action going on, a lot of activity on the part mm -hmm. of faculty and unions and other stuff to sort of try and see how some of that those impacts could be mitigated. Nah. But other than that, I feel lucky. 
That's good. How about you, Alan? Yeah, I feel privileged and lucky to like Tom. I mean, I my day job is Hampshire College, which is a small, funky liberal arts college, and we're mostly face to face. We've got only about 500 students on campus. Everybody is in hmm. singles. Everybody got tested. Everybody is negative. Huge fingers crossed that it continues that way. So yeah, it's a small little campus in Southern Amherst. Please come visit. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're lucky and just hope it continues that way. It sounds like an idyllic place to come visit if we were allowed to travel anywhere. Right yeah, now. right. <laughs> Don't come visit this week, but maybe you'll have a, an invite down the road. That would nice. be lovely. And and after we force football through the eye of this COVID needle and everything settled, <laughs> right? Because let's, let's be honest, there's some, when we're talking about political economy, I mean, for where I sit, that's a major issue here with, with how everyone is behaving. So it comes as bright comes into no surprise to either of you how things are working out. But before we launch into that and spend too much time complaining about our own administrations, I'd really <laughs> love to hear more about both of you. We like to hear academic origin stories so that our audience can get a context for how these really interesting and complex products that we end up with started. So, you know, I would be sitting here holding your book, but I loaned it to one of my doctoral students to use as a resource. And I'd love to hear even before that, like how you both started off in anthropology and then came to be where you are today. Well, I started in archeology. span I actually, somewhat accidentally, I went to University of New Mexico for summer school and found myself, long story, but I won't do, go into that, but found myself in a field school and then did probably five seasons of archaeology before I ever did any other sort of work in anthropology. But in my last, what turned out to be my sort of master's research, I was working in the Canadian Arctic and came to realize that I found the people and the culture and the history and even the human physiology a lot more interesting than the archaeology. You're speaking my language, Tom. <laughs> you know, and that pushed me into partly through a connection with another faculty member to UMass to work with Brooke Thomas, who had been working in, you know, the high mountains of the Southern Andes and with Quechua populations there. And, and that's where I met Alan was at UMass, but that was sort of how I moved more into the area of sort of human biology and biocultural anthro. How did you get interested in archeology span to begin with? You know, a combination. Honestly, my sister had signed me up for a dig where she was in school when I was in high school and I couldn't go, they canceled it. And I thought, well, that sounded kind of interesting. But then what I, the, Long story, when I went out to New Mexico, I was supposed to go to summer school. I met with an advisor who said, just to take this summer, you're wasting your time here. But I have a slot on an archeological project. And I just went, sure. You know, he said, it's up in this remote area in New Mexico. And I said, sure, why not? And I worked with this guy, Dennis Stanford, who was at the Smithsonian and kept contacts with him and worked three other years with him out West. So I was a really a paleoarchaeologist. I mean, I was a early human archaeologist out West working on Hell's Gap, Clovis, that kind of stuff. That's my beginning. <laughs> Alan, what about you? Yeah, so Tom and I have lots of sort of crisscrossing overlaps. 
Yeah, I'm a Massachusetts boy, and I was a first-generation college student and maybe a little bit of an overachiever. So I ended up being a zoology major with a psychology minor, but really interested in philosophy and political theory and all of that stuff. And so my best friend was an advisor of George Amelagos, and he said, you have to take a, a course with George Amelagos. So finally, I had one slot in my last semester as an undergraduate. I took a class with George, piece of cake, and we got to talking afterwards. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know what I'm doing after I graduate. So he said, come do research. So I ended up doing research, looking at dental enamel hypoplasia, which are stress lines on teeth that you can look at in contemporary populations, and eventually I did, and also archaeological populations. And the question we were looking at was whether or not there was a change in these lines or stress from hunting and gathering to agriculture. There was. And so I said, how cool is this to be able to do research on this really cool question about human history and that it was biocultural. So I would say, I mean, that was what hooked me. And I think it's serendipity is sort of got it started. But what really stuck was being able to look at sort of bioculturally, you know, this big kind of question about human history in a little lab in Amherst, Massachusetts. I would just say I would jump on Alan and just and add in that I think I'm the same way. It was those sort of field integrated, holistic, biocultural questions. How could you ever be bored? You know, so there was always another question down the line. There was always, it was so exciting. It felt like the right discipline. It felt like the right area to be in. Yeah. And of course, you're preaching to the choir here with Kara and I, but Alan, I'm glad you, you mentioned George Armeligos. I was going to ask. So Kara and I have, have recently, in the last year, started doing memorial episodes for some of the foundational people as they pass. And, and unfortunately, George Armelios passed a few years before we started doing this podcast, but he certainly had a tremendous influence on biocultural anthropology program at Emory, then later, and, and our program here at the University of Alabama. So it's it's worth noting how significant that is, that, that he tapped you as someone and brought you in, because I see a continuity there over time. Yeah, I'll say and one more thing about George, and this is true also for Brooke Thomas that both Tom and I work with, is the strong mentorship, man. I mean, George was like immediately like some undergraduate and he says, come work with me. And I did. And I never applied to another graduate program. You know, it was like I, I worked that summer and I applied to the graduate program at UMass. And, you know, George was, by the way, a tremendous cook. And Tom has now taken <laughs> over that mantle oh, of yeah. being really, you know, excellent cook, which is, you know, That's fun. A, a good side skill. Good to know. Kara, mm -hmm. we know whose house yeah. to stay at, right? There we go. <laughs> I like how we're inviting ourselves over to Amherst <laughs> with every chance we get here. Uh, and so you two were part of bringing together a conference on a new biocultural synthesis. And, and as you said in the email, kind of funny that you've been working on this for over 30 years, but if you could take us back to how the idea for that conference came about and what your goal was for that conference that eventually got turned into a book. So it's nice to reminisce, but I'll, I'll try to be quick. <laughs> 
So yeah, give or take 30 years ago. And it's like, wow, that's a long time that people like Tom and Brooke Thomas and George Malagos and Alan Swedlin and Michael Blakey and Deborah Martin, we were all talking about kind of what then was very salient biocultural split and anthropology and also some splitting around sort of science and humanistic perspectives and how problematic that was for really looking at humans bioculturally. And for instance, Eric Wolf famously talked about looking at real humans in real places, but those humans weren't being really looked at biologically or under the skin. And so we wanted to really integrate biology back into anthropology. And Sidel Silverman, who was head of the Winogrand Foundation, we approached her, by the way, she was sort of glassy-eyed looking at posters at the American Association of Physical Anthropology meeting, so we kind of pounced on her and suggested this idea of kind of doing a rethinking of biocultural anthropology and really trying to integrate more political economic perspectives, you know, really a perspective that would look at real problems of real people bioculturally. And so she was game for that and we were game for doing it. And we had a tremendous conference that eventually led to the book. And um, yeah. yeah. I wanna just sort of put a pin in a couple of things you said for listeners, right? Cause we emphasize mentorship, we, we emphasize how people find opportunities to build platforms. And the Wintergrand Foundation is a great one. And the strategy you've used is one that I've, I've seen be repeatedly successful with Leslie Aiello and now with Danilyn Rutherford and even other members, which is when they hold those open bar events at the meetings, go to them, talk to them, especially after everyone's had a few drinks in them, propose your idea and follow up on them because they're always looking for innovative and interdisciplinary workshops and conferences to move the field forward in ways like that. And people often, students especially, don't often understand what they need to be doing at conferences. And that's a great example. Yeah, anyway, I'll just dovetail on Alan's, what he said, because he really encapsulated it quite well. You know, that was a time where, as you guys know, that biocultural split was pretty strong there wasn't a lot of dialogue but across the subdisciplines, or not as much as there should have been. And there were a lot of critiques. And so part of, you know, in framing some of it, part of the idea too was like, how can we answer the critiques that people are lodging at human ecology and adaptation and so forth and so on? And create a dialogue, kind of talk about biocultural in a way that both sides can actually feel like they have something at stake. And then, you know, for me personally, I had been working in Peru where I'd been working in the southern Andes in an area where there had been a long legacy of research on high altitude adaptation, you know, to, to high altitude, to hyperbaric hypoxia. And the reality is it had become pretty apparent that poverty and inequalities that people were living in, the really grinding poverty, was shaping their biology and health certainly as much, if not more, than altitude was. And so it was partly also, and I think a lot of us were grappling with this, how can we bring in new theory that helps us do better kinds of biocultural analyses in the realities we all found ourselves working in, which were often these areas with pretty grinding poverty. So it's been hard, I would say, uh, as I told Kara, like I, I was introduced to your book in grad school, right? And, and what I remember is, I was learning a biocultural anthropology and the cultural folks in my department were really focused on political economy. And I remember it made my head explode to try to think about 
how I would integrate the two. And I would say at the time, I kind of just skirted the question until I was a professor and could, you know, build up a research program. And I feel like I still struggle with it. So I, I wonder from your perspective, how well you think the field has done in that integration. I'll take a first stab. I'll give it to Alan, but I'll make, but I'll mention one other little piece of the context first that really helped us, which was where we were at UMass at the time, there was a real thriving kind of group of folks doing political economy work. And there was a lot of collaboration. So people like George Armelagos and Brooke Thomas and Alan Sweddle were talking to all the archaeologists and the cultural anthropologists doing political economic work. So rather than kind of telling us you shouldn't be doing that, it was like, why don't you guys try to do that? Well, you know, so that was very welcoming environment. And that made a big difference, mm -hmm. as Alan had mentioned before, the mentorship. How have we done with political economy? I'll give a short answer and I'll let, I'll let Alan build up. I feel like it's become certainly more acceptable. It's become understood as something we need to do a better job with. The field has moved to where people are actively looking for ways to integrate kinds of political economic analyses with studies of human biology. I kind of feel like we still have a ways to go, you know, and some of that is some of the things that have been rectified a little bit in some recent years, but some of that sort of methodologically, some of that, as you were saying, the challenge of how do you, you know, I'm trained as a biologist. How do I go out and do political economy? You know, how do you find the collaborations to help you do this? But um, it seems daunting. And I think, unfortunately, for a number of folks, it seems so daunting that maybe they would just go, I can't do it. I'll just, I'll drop it. I'll do something else. It seems a little more legible or some other aspect of culture or society that I can measure a little bit more easily than the kind of more messy, amorphous political economy. And so I think it's held us back a little bit. That's, that's been a struggle to a degree. Mm -hmm. But Alan. I think it's a really good question, Chris. I think what we should give ourselves credit for is a shift in focus over the last 22 years to making our work much more relevant to real world questions and essentially political economic questions. And here, you know, racism, structural inequalities, poverty are things that, you know, 20, 30 years ago were not a big foci of the discipline. And I think we've gotten real, I think we've had a lot of good collaborative work, not just with fellow scientists, but with the individuals we work with. So I think that that's something that's been a huge shift. Tom and I and other people who we worked with had a vision of really understanding, going upstream and really understanding the root causes of say inequality and poverty, not just looking at the biological consequences of that. And I think that's been really a little bit more difficult to do because it brings you to different places and following things upstream that we're just not used to. And I think a really good example of this is that the work that we did in the Yucatan on Coca-Cola consumption or coca colonization is I think we did a great job of really understanding at a community level how Western junk foods were impacting nutrition. But, you know, we were like, had really ideas about going back to the Coke plant and understanding the political economy of soft drink consumption as a global phenomena. 
And, you know, that was just something we could read about and understand, but actually do the work was, was not something I think we, we were able to do. I like that passage in the paper, actually, where you acknowledged that. We were like, you know, maybe we didn't even fully read the theory before we started talking about it. And we could still probably do more of that even now. And these are the things that we could do because it really laid out, we do know these things are missing. And just my logical extension would be like, oh, there's a good entry point for a student. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing I'll say is that where I'm really heartened and where we're where we've moved and where we're going and, and kind of integrating political economy and the thing is with the newer generation. Right. I go to the meetings and I see students out in the last 10 years or five years doing a lot more of that in a way. You know, and so for them, incorporating ethnography into their biomarkers is just that's what you do, you know, paying attention to these sorts of issues and more as Alan was talking about kind of current you know, issues affecting everyone around the Grove. It's a little bit more what people are doing. So I think of, you know, Elizabeth Sweet's stuff working mm -hmm. on embodied neoliberalism or whatever and, yeah. and the price of debt and all these things. And you're like, I want to see people doing more of that. Yeah, you know? that if that is that work keep moves, then all the other stuff kind of will come in, I think, to a degree. So unlike Chris, I was not exposed to biocultural theory at all in grad school, which should be a major concern. And, and, and I find it upsetting now that I'm, I'm well on the other side of that. And so I came to your work a bit later and very recently with the article that you all wrote for AJHB Special Issue and Bill Leonard chose that as, as his editor's choice. That article guided me so much on a grant that I just recently submitted this summer. I work with reindeer herders in Finland and a big part of that project is looking at the, the political and social economy and climate change in the Arctic and how that is affecting and being embodied by people who still maintain some traditional livelihoods or aspects of traditional livelihoods. And so I wanted the, the two main themes that I found incredibly helpful to me were, were folks situated biologies and embodiment. And I was hoping you could, for perhaps listeners like me who weren't familiar with these things before, maybe describe a little bit what those are, that, that situated biology and embodiment. So I'll maybe start and let Tom that clean up. So situated biologies or local biologies is an idea that comes mostly out of the work of cultural anthropologist Margaret Locke at McGill. Locke, sorry, I said folk, I apologize, Locke. <laughs> yeah, and what she gets at as a medical anthropologist, and she's somebody that's sort of great to dialogue with, by the way, and there are a variety of medical nutritional anthropologists from the cultural side that I think are really biocultural. She takes a notion that what one sees as biology, and it could be a life course event or aging, has different manifestations and different biological processes depending on where you grow up and under what situations you grow up. And what I like about it as an anthropologist is it sort of breaks down the notion of some sort of universal biology or universal, you know, stressor or stress response or immune response and really takes seriously local conditions. And it's almost like, you know, the looking at terroir in wines and grapes and humans are sort of the same, you know, that we are incredibly, you know, the same event in different circumstances and different contexts can have 
an incredibly different biological consequence. So, you know, that's sort of what I, I really like about sort of thinking about humans in local contexts. And it, you know, takes away the philosophical approach that we're all the same no matter what, or even kind of a political economic approach that, you know, there's always the same class structure or, or socioeconomic status means the same thing everywhere. No, it doesn't. There's all sort of some local variants that we need to take into account. And that gets really interesting. It's messy, but really interesting. And that's the thing I think I love so much about it is that it highlights and celebrates the variation that we see yeah. in humans. And so often we are desperate to come up with these overarching theories that explain everything everywhere for everyone. And those are just never the case. So I, I very much appreciate the focus on the variation. Yeah. And let me just say, I'll say a word about embodiment. And I think what the phrase that I use a lot is how culture gets under the skin. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, and it also gets on the skin in terms of tattooing and things of that sort. And you know, how we see skin color, how we see race is a biocultural phenomenon. For instance, back to looking at teeth, you know, how we're looking at stress lines on teeth. I mean, that's culture getting under the skin and literally affecting ameloblasts that are making enamel. And it's all, you know, a process of environment and culture. And so it's a translation. So uh, that's part of sort of what I think the fancy word of embodiment means of one type of embodiment and uh -huh. there's others too. Yep. I'll just play off on Alan, but I think he said it very well. And, you know, this notion of situated biologies really recognizes that biologies develop in local environments and local histories. And as you were saying, it really becomes, I think, situated biologies is another way to look at plasticity and variation. It really translates well into that practice. And then embodiment is a concept, of course, it's part of that, as Alan's saying, that lived reality at the local level is getting under the skin and whatever is part of that process of embodiment. But it recognizes, you know, that you're sort of born and grow up in particular social and material worlds, and that those worlds literally become incorporated into the body in your physiology, in your habits, in your gestures, in the way you walk, the way you act, all sorts of other things. And for biocultural people, particularly, the way we kind of grow and develop from birth and death in environments, you know, that may be food insecure, or water insecure, toxic, whatever, where we're often looking at those sorts of biological and health outcomes of that. And it's really embodiments, you know, I think we'd have to say it's had one of its biggest impacts in work, the kind of work Alan's done, where he's been looking at the impacts of racism on biology. Mm -hmm. So it's been a concept that was really important in sort of linking how that lived reality of racism becomes embodied literally into our biology and health and the kind of health inequities we see. Yeah, and the embodiment can be multi-generational, you know, new advances in looking at the microbiome is another kind of avenue to really understanding how the outside gets inside. Right. So out of curiosity, 30 years ago, when you were putting together this conference and the conception of the book, did you have any inkling of what epigenetics would bring to the field of biocultural human biology? I think honestly, I would say pretty close to zero. <laughs> uh, if not zero. I mean, I think uh, 
you know, where Waddington's work a little bit, but no. And I think one of the big advances is kind of, again, I mean, I love kind of making things a little bit more complex and about how, you know, the whole nature nurture paradigm has begun to mm -hmm. break down. And I think epigenetics is one of the places that really kind of takes the central dogma and make it, makes it a little bit more complex. And Kara, I want to also just say to you as an aside, um, having not been exposed to biocultural is probably pretty normal. Maybe Chris mm -hmm. is the outlier here that 20 to 30 years ago, there was really not a biocultural anthropology. The term wasn't being used. It certainly wasn't showing up in job advertisements and things of that sort. So that's also a, bi a big shift is that, you know, I think biocultural has become something we recognize as part of anthropology. I'll agree with Alan in terms of also I don't think we had any idea. Well, I didn't have any idea what epigenetics or the microbiome or any of those things were going to do. You know, so in the paper we talk about, and we weren't really discussing embodiment, local biologies and whatever so much at that time either. And those concepts have had, you know, major impact and certainly, and certainly within the you know, human bi world of human biology and biological anthropology, epigenetics and the microbiome are having mm. a tremendous impact. So it's interesting when you hear these people talking about, well, the reactive genome, you know, and unstable bodies and relation bodies, relationality of bodies and stuff. And these are just ways of thinking and talking about bodies that I can't remember any of them being around, mm. <laughs> you know. So it's amazing how it and Alan, I'm not willing to give my grad school that big of a pass as I only got my PhD seven years ago. <laughs> it was just, it was very focused on very different things. And, but you still might be right. I, I just look at, I was at the University of Albany before I came to Notre Dame and both Notre Dame and U Albany, they're very big about the biocultural approach. And so it's been a very different environment for me as faculty versus as a grad student. But I think you're right with it being very program to program specific. Yeah, yeah, but well, Kara, you're totally rehabilitated, so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm starting. I'm on the path. <laughs> so in terms of the prescience, really, that Yale's work has, has shown, right? And you said we wanted to be more relevant, you know, addressing systemic racism and stuff. So, you know, if, if we're being honest, George R. Melagos and you guys predicted where we are now. I mean, George wrote repeatedly and, and many of the students wrote repeatedly about epidemiological transition and the emergence of infectious diseases and dual disease burden and so while this comes as no surprise we're all reacting as though this because it is a pandemic that we're all suffering a universal phenomenon but what i'm hearing from you now is we have to be careful and think about this still in terms of local, because there's going to be a lot of variation in terms of what happens. So I, I'm kind of curious, you know, this question is, is in the, the list we sent you, but I'm sort of giving it a spin. How do we apply this framework to deal with our present crisis? Do we have answers? Uh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll say I think, I think what the present crisis has done is kind of shown the stark reality of systemic racism, right? And have shown the kind of stark reality of different ways different folks in society live and the kind of resources they have and life options they have and so forth. That has a really big impact on both, 
you know, obviously their biology, their health, their survivorship at this point. I, I haven't thought about your question. I would argue that, yeah, a biocultural approach has everything to do with sort of thinking about and addressing issues around pandemics or other factors and climate change and homelessness and evictions and all sorts of other sorts of things. I think, as you both said, I mean, I think the crisis of police brutality and the COVID pandemic has exposed in levels of inequality and racism that a lot of people weren't seeing. And so I think there's been an uptick for sure in anthropologists, biocultural anthropologists, studying vulnerable populations, understanding kind of racism or trying to understand how racism, race, racism gets under the skin, et cetera. I expect that will increase I hope that will increase. You know, as Tom said, studying debt, studying homelessness, you know, these are things we weren't really seeing a decade even ago. And I think we're seeing it much more. And I think it's going to continue. I think anthropologists have become much more collaborative and community-based. I think that's good. And I'll just say one other thing in terms of sort of trying to think about kind of the how the field has changed. In some sense, when our, our volume came out, I think there was a lot of like acceptance from cultural anthropologists right off the bat saying, oh, you guys are great. You guys are not like those other biological anthropologists who are reductionistic and look at evolution, but don't care at all about living peoples and all of that stuff. And then I think in the last 10, 15 years has been a shift in, you know, you can see it at the physical anthropology meetings, at the human biology meetings towards, you know, these really biocultural questions and embracing them. And so that's, I think, fantastic. And I hope it continues. And I hope, as Chris says, you know, we were prescient or, you know, I've never been called prescient before, but I think <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, I'm hoping, I think, I think Alan's right that we will see more research on this as we come along. I'm part of a, an anti-race reading group at our department that we that just sort of started this year, given everything that's been going on. And one of the first readings, what it noted about was how little anthropology as a discipline is actually engaged in studies of racism, mm. you know, a fair amount about race and other sorts of things. And I think that's going to, I mean, I do think that will change. And I think, I think it already has been changing, but I think that will change. And these current moments are gonna probably drive it even more. So in trying to see your hopes of this work being done in the future, what advice might you have for folks making these attempts? As you've already mentioned, biocultural work is messy and it's hard. And you feel like you have to be an expert in you know, seven to 10 different things to try to be able to do it right. So for you know graduate students, postdocs, and you know untenured faculty, what advice do you have for tackling this kind of work and developing a research project or program? I think my number one advice, and this is really for anybody, undergraduates, graduates, is ask a really great question. You know, and you know, a really important question. You know, like I was looking at shifting. You know. It, from health, from hunting and gathering to agriculture early on, you know, make it about the biology of racism, but do it in a way, ask the great question, but do it in a way that's really doable by a small study. 
and that you can really get your hands on it. I think collaboration is key, all sorts of collaborations. Chris mentioned the networks at meetings, but you know, you are your network, you know, in some sense mm -hmm. of, you know, who you are able to work with and learn from. And I don't just mean fellow academics and but also, you know, your networks that you work with on the ground. And lastly, to be flexible and open to the problems and questions that arise when you go into the field and, you know, mm -hmm. encounter something you never expected. And I would, I would sort of add on to that and say, yes, collaboration. I said, I think what you were saying, you didn't get, Cara, but I think having a, the kind of four-field training that opens you up to perspectives from all the disciplines and being open to that and being in that environment obviously helps. Not everyone gets to do it, but it obviously helps. Seeking those collaboration helps and understanding that you can't do everything. <laughs> So you need collaborators, but also for us all to kind of, to beware that everyone feels this imposter syndrome, mm. you know, of like, I'm not doing it well enough to do it, but everyone feels that about everything they do. And so I think there's also a, you know, a certain degree to which you just also have to say, I'm going to do it well enough. And if people tell me, Hey, no, you got it. You know, that wasn't very good. You, you, you rethink, you push ahead, and you keep trying to make those kind of connections. And I think that it, it emerges that way and gets better and better. Because as Alan said, you know, we did that coca colonization project, and we felt like, well, we're trying to integrate political economy and tourism and diet and growth. You know, <laughs> we did some of it, but not all of it. You know, and then, there's, but, and then you realize there's these gaps. I think a lot of it is, as Alan said, framing a good question but framing our questions so that even though we may not be doing all of it, the question, the way we frame it doesn't foreclose mm. kind of mm. another kind of collaboration coming in and helping to expand it, you know, so that you recognize this other piece is there even if you can't do it and you acknowledge it. And that sort of opens the door for people to build off of whatever piece you've done, you know. I think at this stage in my career, I, you know, I was doing a lot of lab work, a lot of field work. I'm doing less of that in much more public education and specifically mm. race, racism and human genetic variation. I think that's where I feel like I can have the biggest impact. And so I'm co-director of the American Anthropological Association Public Education Project, understandingrace.org, little shout out. Also, I'll say if, if there's anybody out there that wants to help us with the website, please, please, please email me. And just came out with the second edition of the book that goes along with the project. And I'm right now writing a question and answer formatted book on race, racism, and human variation with Joseph Graves, who's an amazing evolutionary biologist. That's mostly what I'm, I'm trying to kick out the door. That's great. I, I love his work. And as, as you know, we recasted your interview about that project that you did for the Speaking of Race program and are, you know, strong advocates for all the work that the AAA has done in that regard. So uh, I'm glad to hear that it's continuing. I was kind of unsure of the longitudinal nature of that project. Would, would love help with it. Yeah. If anybody out there is interested. We will add a call for that to our podcast in some way, shape, or form. What about you, Tom? Well, 
I was planning to go back to the field <laughs> this May. I was going to spend some time in Mexico, and one of my goals has been to has been to go back and actually try and and just create. I, I have some collaborators there, but to build rebuild those collaborations and do something of a restudy of the work we did there a long time ago on COVID colonization. Given that Mexico has one of the highest rates of obesity in the world, adolescents in the Yucatan are the highest in Mexico. So the issue that we kind of saw as like a potential, potentially growing issue is out of sight now. It's yeah. really, you know, what I'd like to, to see what's happening there on the ground and, and collaborate with some local students and, and do that when we're allowed to get back. And then I look forward to going back to Peru, which has been my long-term research area where I've been collaborating more recently with Morgan Hoke and others and, and, you know, taking more of a backseat role and just sort of enjoying working with people who are forging their, you know, their questions. And we've been looking on impacts of dairying on diet and growth and a range of other sorts of stuff there. And then just a bunch of writing projects. And still very interested in sort of biocultural theory, right? And how we can continue to push that envelope a little bit further down along the line. Wonderful. So we often like to, to wrap up these interviews with a little bit more of the casual question of how you all maintain work-life integration. What are the sorts of fun things that you do when you're not writing and working on big projects for, for AAA? Work-life <laughs> what's that? Yeah, I mean, it's like, where does time go? But on a positive, I feel like anthropology is kind of life and my life. And so, and I, I love it. But I do try to get out for walks a lot these days. And that's been a nice thing about COVID with my wife, Tom, sometimes if I can drag him along. My little Labradoodle is almost always by my side. Today, I was supposed to guest lecture in a class and it got canceled. Oh. So I went kayaking instead and on the Connecticut River, which was nice. And then I have to really encourage Tom to do more barbecue. That's, that's <laughs> In this time of COVID, that's, I mean, Alan's speaking barbecue, but this has occupied a fair amount of my time. It's easy to get up and go, what are we gonna cook today? And a lot of cooking. And I actually did smoke a, a big pork butt not that long ago, Alan. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it pretty soon. And so do that. I'm a big fan of meat smokers. Big oh. fan. Chris has had my smoked ribs and chicken before. He knows. <laughs> oh, we're coming to win. We're inviting <laughs> ourselves over. And Karen Sounds got good. me a, a book specifically on cooking meat. Mm -hmm. I have like engineered smokers at my house as well. So yeah, we have a whole thing going. <laughs> Well, Next you know, the whole, whole idea is that we organized a little mini conference of people to talk biocultural with the, the ultimate goal of just doing some cook-offs, right? And Love just it. eat a little bit. <laughs> good meat, good we'll pitch that to Wintergren next. Back to George Armelagos. Alan will remember it better, but George was huge on throwing feasts at his house. And he probably cooked for his students almost weekly, it seemed like. But he always cooked the three food groups, which I think were chicken pork and sausage alan or was it <laughs> <laughs> all proteins yeah all proteins yeah. <laughs> never met a protein he didn't like so <laughs> one of the things this question always does for people is it sets up a defensiveness where people feel like they have to tell us things they do that aren't anthropology and we've toggled away from saying the words work-life balance to work-life integration 
And what's so wonderful to hear is how they can be integrated in ways that are actually rejuvenating, which is one of the things that I miss about conferences right now. They always rejuvenated me. And I love seeing colleagues with whom I can talk food and research in the same breath. No, it's true. It's true. This is, you know, in some ways the COVID thing has been like, as Alan said, more walks. I planted a garden for the first time in a long time. So I'm never home in the summer, but the work-life balance has been, it's been okay. Yeah. My garden didn't die in the July heat for the first time ever. This is the first yeah. July I've yeah. actually been in Alabama to watch it. So. Where opposite for me, we had a super late frost in Northern Indiana, which like killed a third of my garden, even with heat lamps and parks and everything. Alabama. I mean, <laughs> away from Indiana. Chris, I was going to say, I appreciated the letter that you posted, I think, on Facebook that you wrote to the uh, city council in Tuscaloosa or the mayor or wherever it was. Yeah. Because it felt for you guys, <laughs> you know, because you're being put in a tough position. Yeah, it's, it's one of the, we actually started this episode saying how we wish administrators at both of our universities had talked to people who do biocultural studies to understand both the biology of what's going on, but more importantly, the human behavior that no one seems to have taken into account when implementing these campus policies. So yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling the need for that hard. And municipal policy. So, so I don't know if either of you are taking on grad students or, or anything or, or want people to get a hold of you, but we always wrap up with how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more? Well, the easiest way to get a hold of me is by email. And it's tleatherman at anthro.umass.edu. And I'm not taking on new grad students, but I'm working with a lot of grad students. Okay. And so I, what I do is sort of encourage people to come knowing if, that there's somebody else they can really work with and that I'll also be a partner in that. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good way to go about it. How about you, Alec? I'm a goodman at hampshire.edu and I'm also not doing graduate students at the moment, but I am really up for talking to anybody who's interested in an outside voice or whatever about what they may be doing or thinking. So yeah, so if anybody is just interested, please drop me a line. And, and also any interest in public education around race and racism. Yeah, I'm going to actively solicit some folks for you on, on that count because that's, <laughs> that's a big deal. Well, we want to thank you both for taking the time. This is this was like a dream come true for both Chris and I to get a chance to chat with you both and, and hear what you have to say because your work has been so influential for both of us. So yeah, thank you for being on the Saucers of Science. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.